Welcome to Responding to Life, a podcast hosted by me, Josephine Atlery. Do you ever feel like you could use some guidance when life throws you a curveball? By listening to the narratives in this podcast, you will learn from other people's experiences and responses to challenging situations so you can fast track the learning curve to get ahead of your own life. Welcome back to another episode of Responding to Life. Before the interview with my first guest, Shark, I had discussed with my friend, Sara Toussaint, why I wanted to have a big family, despite the challenges my husband and I knew we would have to face to have kids. I shared an overview of the in vitro fertilization, or IVF process, which is the route we first took in order to conceive a child. I started IVF at the Reproductive Fertility Department at one of the big hospitals in Boston at the age of 26, after being married to M for five years. To recap, IVF involves hormonal injections in order to stimulate your ovaries to produce multiple eggs. More than one egg is needed, as some eggs won't fertilize or develop normally after fertilization. The eggs are then fertilized with sperm, either conventionally by being mixed together and incubated overnight, or the sperm can be directly injected into the egg. After two to five days of the embryo developing, the embryo then gets transferred into the woman's uterus, hopefully implanting and resulting in pregnancy. At the start of the IVF process, it is nerve-wracking as you don't know how your body will react to the hormone stimulation and you don't know what to expect of the egg retrieval and transfer. It typically takes more than one round to become pregnant anyway so as you continue to undergo IVF attempts, you may become accustomed to the effects of the hormones and the flow of the process, but what begins to change is your mentality, your confidence, your fortitude, your resolve, your relationship with yourself, your spouse, your friends and family becomes impacted with every defeat. Sometimes those relationships start to deteriorate, but most often, a distancing begins to unfold. The nature of this journey is isolating as the procedure is so entwined with your abilities to perform one of your basic functions as a woman. Talking about your journey with others is difficult because in essence, it is an admission of impotence. And the last thing we want to add to our already damaged psyche is the judgment of others. In this episode, I will share with you two snippets from my first year doing IVF. The first story is our initial attempt at IVF, and the second story is our last IVF round with the same reproductive fertility center. In the span of that one year, my transformation evolved from the youthfully optimistic woman with hope in her eyes and her heart to a dejected and physically and emotionally tired woman who felt all alone. It was the morning of my first embryo transfer, and I was lying on an exam table in a room on the surgical floor of the hospital. I was wearing one of those thin hospital gowns that didn't cover much and left me cold to the core. I was all nerves as I sat there, patiently waiting for the doctor to be ready to transfer the two embryos that had successfully matured over the last five days in the lab. 
It turns out I had no problems in the egg department, and the medication they gave me to mature those eggs worked like a charm, as they retrieved enough eggs from my follicles. The embryologist picked the best eggs and injected them with the sperm and waited for them to grow into embryos. After five days of developing, the two best were selected, and those were the ones I was waiting anxiously to have inserted into my uterus. I was instructed by the nurse to drink water an hour before my transfer time so that I could have a full bladder. I didn't realize at the time, as no one had specifically told me, but having a full bladder was crucial in the success of this process. You see, a full bladder helps change the angle of the, the uterus to make the transfer easier, and it helps your doctor see the catheter clearly with the transabdominal ultrasound so the embryos can be placed in the perfect spot. A little bit later than my scheduled transfer time, I finally made it into the cold surgical room where everything was a soothing blue color, from the scrubs worn by the medical team to the floor tiles and the walls. Thankfully, they had given me a Valium prior to the procedure, not just to calm my nerves, but also to relax the muscles of my uterus for a better implantation. In preparation for the catheter containing the embryos to be guided to my body, the doctor used an ultrasound machine to locate the uterus. As it turned out, however, I had not drank enough water to fill up my bladder. Thus, my uterus was not in a good position for the embryos to be transferred. As my doctor realized this, he then got up from his stool, looked at me in my face as I lay helplessly on that bed, and in a very abrasive and loud tone, he told me that I had not drank enough water and that I had to go back to the exam room and drink more and would be called back in for another attempt. When I returned to the exam room, the nurse handed me a pitcher of water and a glass and left me to correct my wrongs. I think the Valium began to wear off at this point, and as time went on, I began to get progressively anxious. I thought I had drank enough water, as I certainly felt like I had to really use the bathroom, but I could not for fear of having enough water in my bladder. When the doctor was finally ready for me, I felt like I was going to burst. I got back on the bed and the ultrasound showed that I had drank too much water. I was instructed to let a little of it go. At this point, I was a wreck and just wanted this horrible experience to be over. Thankfully, the doctor was finally able to transfer the two embryos into my uterus and after resting in the hospital bed for an hour, I was able to go home. After almost two weeks of taking it easy at home post-embryo transfer, I went into the lab to get a blood test to see if an embryo had implanted and I was pregnant. The next day after the blood test, I was lounging around our townhome in Boston trying to busy myself with our tiny balcony garden. I had created a mini oasis with my garden boxes, hanging plants, and a mini water fountain. Granted, the balcony was facing the parking lot of the building complex and was not much of a view but the super inviting and cozy space I created on the balcony made up for the lack of, of views. It was the afternoon, so M was home a little earlier than usual for work because he knew the call was coming soon. It was comforting to have him around, so I wasn't all alone in my nervous thoughts. As I was watering the plants on that hot, sunny summer day, the phone rang, and I picked it up instantly as I had the wireless phone right next to me. As the nurse and I exchanged hellos, I returned into the living room, sat next to M on our green sofa, and squished my body up next to his. Without too much beating around the bush, 
the nurse delicately told me that unfortunately I was not pregnant and was staring at me anxiously, waiting to hear the verdict. And as the nurse continued talking about next steps, I looked at him and slowly shook my head no. He let his lower lip protrude out a bit and made a sad face and mouthed the words, I'm sorry, babe. While I finished up my call with the nurse, he nuzzled his head into my shoulder. As soon as I ended the call, he wrapped me up in a tight embrace and reassured me that it was okay because it was just our first try. As I basked in his comforting embrace, I felt sad and disappointed that it had not worked out right away. To cheer us up, we spent the rest of the day together just lounging around, and after a few days of wallowing in self-pity and sadness, my optimism was slowly restored, and I was ready to try again as soon as they gave me the green lights. After that initial attempt at IVF, I went through at least five more unsuccessful attempts at the same reproductive fertility center. The results of the IVF attempts were either me not getting pregnant or else having a chemical pregnancy. What's a chemical pregnancy? Well, it's an early pregnancy loss that occurs shortly after implantation. What happens is the initial blood test for determining pregnancy results as a positive pregnancy, but then over the course of the next few weeks, when one's blood is monitored for consistent levels of the pregnancy hormone, HCG, the hormone level starts to drop, indicating the early loss of the pregnancy. This happened to me a couple of times during the IVF journey, and it was a tortuous game of excitement and hope morphing into devastation and failure. One year later, after our initial attempt, it was the fall of 2005, and I had just had yet another embryo transfer seven days ago. I was 27 at the time. Once again, I was awaiting a call from the nurse regarding the results of my pregnancy blood test. This time around, I was sitting in a very darkly lit hotel room in Manchester, New Hampshire, all by myself. The walls of the room were made of a dark wood, and the furniture was a mix of dark browns and blacks to bring together that woodsy motif. I was sitting in a hotel room in the middle of nowhere because we were in the process of moving to a neighborhood in New Hampshire, so M could be closer to work as he had gotten tired of his one-hour, one-way daily commute to work from Boston to New Hampshire. We had moved out of our quaint town home a day ago and were staying in the hotel for a couple of days while we moved our belongings into the very first home that we bought together as a married couple. I was just lying lazily in the hotel bed as I was tied to the room until the nurse called. When the phone finally rang, I felt my chest tighten as I slowly reached out to grab the receiver. The nervous excitement that I had during the first few IVF attempts had now been replaced by complete and utter dread. Gone was the hopefulness that had powered me through the first few IVF tries. At this point, I now just kept going through the same IVF procedures because I had no other choice if I wanted to one day conceive and carry a baby on my own. The nurse began to talk, and before she even told me that I was not pregnant, I could already hear it in her tone. I didn't even feel like I was on the phone with her, because once I heard the words, not pregnant, I'm sorry, dear, the rest of whatever she had just said transformed into a muffled mess, and I had no recollection of what she may have said to me, nor did I really care at that point, honestly. The tears didn't flow out of me easily, like it had the first few times. But it wasn't that I was in shock 
Not at all. On the contrary, I had figured I probably wasn't pregnant. I just sat there at the edge of the bed and zoned out, waiting for her to stop talking so I could just crawl into my abyss of loneliness and despair. But after I hung up with the nurse, I didn't immediately go back into my black hole of sadness. As if in a robotic pattern, I called M at work, but only got his voicemail, so I hung up without leaving a message. Then I called my best friend in Chicago. She was my business partner in the event planning company that we started last year. She knew that today was the day of the blood test results, so when she picked up the phone and said hello, she let a silence linger so that I could be the one to bring up the news. Not pregnant, I told her straight away. Oh girl, I'm sorry, she said, her typically bubbly voice becoming somber. It's okay. I responded automatically, and then without any further discussion, I brushed off what had just been said, and I proceeded to talk business about one of our clients' upcoming weddings. The moment I hung up the phone, I soberly walked over to the windows and drew the blackout shades, which made the lonely room as dark as night, which perfectly matched the black hole I was already climbing into in my mind at this point. I made my way into the hard bed with the sterile and crisp hotel sheets, and as I pulled the covers over my body, the tears began to pour out of me. This time around, the tears that flowed down my face weren't primarily from the disappointment I felt from not being pregnant. Over the last few tries, feelings of failure and inadequacy were at the heart of each failed attempt. The voice inside my head grew louder and louder as each failure fueled the fire of my negative self-talk. What was wrong with me? Why couldn't I get this right? The tears streaming down my face were an expression of the self-loathing that had begun to completely encompass my entire being during the sixth round of IVF. As I lay in that bed crying my eyes out, I was all alone. But even if I had been in a room filled with people, I still would have felt like I was on my own. Don't get me wrong, M has always been supportive in every aspect of my life, to this day. But he was just a bystander throughout this whole process. I'm sure he wished that he could do something to help me, as I had wished the same when he was battling for his life just years prior. Yet all that he could do was be on the ready to give me the hugs that I needed, the shoulder to lean on, the hand to hold. Unfortunately, those gestures just aren't enough to keep you afloat as you sink further and further into your abyss of pain. The loneliness that I felt during this process was compounded by the fact that I didn't really have anyone to talk to in depth about this journey. Frankly, even if I had, I don't know that I would have wanted to speak the words aloud, as it would have been an admittance of failure and inadequacy of my body, my inability to have children. Because of this inability to share these feelings, life became gray, and I was always in my head. I started resenting everyone around me, especially the happy people, especially the people with children. After this sixth attempt, I took a little break from IVF so I could focus on settling into the new house in hopes that I could shift my mind onto something that would cheer me up. And it was a good project for me to have, as I have always enjoyed decorating and making places feel at home. 
In college, for example, I turned our small walk-in closet that we had in our dorm room into a tiny kitchen. So that's how much I love to fix things up and decorate. I was also able to put some attention into building up that event planning business with my best friend. Honestly, my mind, body, and soul needed a break from this grueling experience. I needed to break free from the cycle of failed attempts and self-loathing because I had begun to lose sight of myself in the process. In looking back on that difficult time in my life, my lesson learned on how to respond to life in that situation is this. Love yourself no matter what. I'm not saying you should feel sad or disappointed when you fail at something. I mean, come on, we're human. Those feelings are valid, so feel them to the fullest. But don't lose sight of who you are by hating on yourself by thinking you're a failure because something isn't working out. In those moments for me when I was in the thick of the IVF attempts, I definitely reacted to those road bumps, emotionally and without perspective. I became so hyper-focused on the desire to get pregnant that I just kept going without stopping to fully realize and reevaluate my situation. Eventually, I began to let those failures define me, such that the cycle of negativity and self-hate consumed me. The weight of the negativity made each subsequent attempt harder to do. Thankfully, when I finally acknowledged my spiraling mindset of negativity, I was able to pause and shift my attention to other things in life, like the new house and the new business. I had the luxury of still being in my 20s trying to do IVF, which is a completely different story from being much older and attempting IVF. My age afforded me some wiggle room for taking a break, whereas someone in their late 30s and 40s doing IVF is going against an aging fertility clock that does not allow for any breaks. This pause in IVF was my way of finally responding to my life in a thoughtful manner. It was time for me to return to things I love to do, things that made me feel good about myself, so that I could rebuild my fragile mental state before another round of IVF. And so, my dear listeners, whatever it is that you're going through in your own lives, it's okay to take that pause for inner maintenance. The pause allows you to stop a negative pattern, embrace and ignite your strengths, and practice loving yourself again. And this renewed spirit will help fuel you when you return back to whatever it is you were fighting for. And that self-love that you revive, that will be the key to cultivating and maintaining true inner strength to keep you going as you strive toward those goals. So if you happen to be in the LA area in March, I invite you to practice this pause for inner maintenance with me over at Unplugged Meditation in Santa Monica. Every Monday in March at 1 p.m., I will be teaching a 30-minute reset and recharge class. To join me for a class, just go to www.unplug.com and click on Find a Class. And then select Santa Monica, and from there you'll be able to book your class with me. Hope to see you there. Thank you for listening to Responding to Life, a podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, and would like to receive a bi-monthly newsletter with an exclusive and free video meditation, along with wellness tips and deals, 
please go to www.respondingtolifepodcast.com and sign up for the newsletter by entering your email address in the pop-up box. In there, you'll also learn my seven-step process on how to meditate like a pro so you can stress less and live more joyfully. If you enjoyed the show, I invite you to share it with your friends and leave a rating and review on whatever podcast outlet you use. I look forward to sharing another inspirational story with you real soon.